Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys this morning, and uh, happy Memorial Day weekend to you. Anyone uh, get the day off tomorrow? A few? Yes? Awesome, awesome. That's great, that's great. So uh, if you are a guest with us, to let you know my name, my name is Andy Middlecoff. I'm one of the pastors here, so welcome here. If you're new, uh, thanks for being our guests. And out in the courtyard um, or in the foyer, we have two like kiosks, and you can go up and get a gift. We want to give you a gift, and thank you for coming. So let's all together turn to 1 Samuel chapter 4. 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you are using one of the Bibles there in the seat rack in front of you, it's on page 213. 213. If you're newer to the Bible, it's toward the beginning of the Bible, and it's uh, after Joshua judges Ruth. Okay, and then it's 1 Samuel and then 2 Samuel. So 1 Samuel chapter 4, we're going to be looking at this morning. Um, if you grabbed one of these on the way in, there's some fill in the blanks. Yes, fill in the blanks. I'm kind of old fashioned like that. So you can follow me along in those notes. Um, you can also pick up one of these LBC journals. They're free. You can pick them up at one of those kiosks I just mentioned. Um, and it's a journal that will help you kind of walk through and ask questions of any specific chapter you're reading to, to zero in on some verses to help you get God's word into your heart and mind more. Another way we do that is with what we call uh, our bookmarks, although they're no longer physical bookmarks. <laughs> One day, um, hopefully, we'll have them again in our hands, but you could go on our website and look at it, and it gives you basically a chapter a day you can read that is from 1 Samuel and then other, uh, other chapters of the Bible that are related to the topics that we're going to be covering in the sermons on Sunday morning. So take a look at that, and it also has... Uh, our memory verse as well. Um, you know, today, is, as I mentioned, uh, this weekend is Memorial Day weekend. And so uh, I think that, uh, like myself, probably often we forget, right, what Memorial Day is about. But let's use this as an opportunity to thank the Lord and to thank vets. We know that it's about those who have given their lives, and we thank God for that. I mean, we're able to meet this morning a big part of that is because of that, because people who are willing to step out there and be willing to give their lives, and some of, some of them did. And those of you who are currently in the military or were in the military, we want to thank you as well because you put yourself in harm's way for our safety. And we just, we just thank, thank you. Thank you very much and, and praise God for you. So uh, this morning, why don't, we, uh, why don't we thank the Lord for that and then also pray for Ukraine and pray for Texas as well. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you. Thank you so much for being here this morning with us. Uh, thank you, Jesus, for, for going before us and suffering and putting yourself in harm's way for us. Uh, thank you, Lord, that we get to live in, in a wonderful country, um, that we have a good military, and that they have been there for us on our behalf so many times in so many ways. And God, we, we give you the praise, but we also thank them, Lord. And, uh, and we do lift up what's going on in Ukraine, and, and we pray first and foremost that this would cause the Ukrainians to turn to Jesus Christ, and that believers, as, as they are going out into different countries, and um, that, that believers would take care of them and tell them about Jesus, and that there is hope, even when there's no hope in this world. Thank you, Lord. And, and we lift up that community in Texas that just went through that horrible thing, Lord. We just pray that uh, you would comfort all the families comfort all the students uh, who, who are a part of that school, the faculty, the staff. Oh God, um, uh, we, we pray that your church, your people would shine the love of Christ uh, to them at this time, Lord. And we pray now that as we open up 1 Samuel chapter 4 and 5 and 6, that you would open our hearts and our minds to wonderful things in your word. 
And it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So this morning, um, I have to cover three chapters. Does anyone think I can do it? You're right, I can't. Okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover most of the first chapter, chapter four, a little bit of the chapter five, and then just kind of summarize the rest. So, okay, just so you know, we won't be here till about three in the afternoon. <laughs> but, but chapter four. So uh, when we look at the events of chapter four, five, and six, what we're going to find uh, are some of the most um, amazing events in the history of Israel. I mean, they, they top right up there with David and Goliath, which actually happens a little later in the book of 1 Samuel. And also, it reminds me of when Elijah was on Mount Carmel in sort of a battle against the prophets of Baal, and then God sent fire down from heaven. That whole story is one of my favorites in the Bible. Well, this one we're going to read this morning, how, how the Philistines steal the Ark of the Covenant, but then how God miraculously brings it back is right up there with those top events of Israel's history. So we're going to take a look at that this morning, and we're going to look at uh, three life lessons from these chapters. Now, we could look at a lot more life lessons than just these three, but we're going to just focus in on three life lessons from these three chapters to see what God has to teach about himself and about us. Before we look at those three life lessons, I want to just give a little bit of a historical background. Now, uh, Josh and Eric, the last couple of weeks have given us some of that historical background. So by way of review, uh, the people of Israel are in the promised land. In Israel, today's modern day Israel, same thing a little bit different borders here and there. Um, and their arch enemy were the Philistines at the time, okay? So they're in Israel. They've been in the land of Israel uh, for about 400 years at this point. They didn't have kings ruling over them at this point. Uh, they saw God as their king. Uh, but God would raise up out of his mercy and grace what, what we call judges. And these judges would rule over the land. They would save the people of Israel from their enemies and then once those judges died, the people would turn back to following other gods and rebel against God, and God would discipline them, and ultimately God would raise up another judge to, to kind of come to their rescue. So at this time, Eli was the judge of Israel. And Eli was not only the judge, he was also what? He was also the high priest. So he had the highest political authority and the highest religious authority in Israel, Eli. And then he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, good guys or bad guys? bad guys, but they were also, uh, they were priests as well. They were some of the religious leaders of Israel, and they were really messing up. Eric and Josh explained that the last couple weeks. You can read the first couple chapters of Samuel to see all the sins they were doing against God and against the people of Israel. Um, and Eli was supposed to stop them from doing this, either say to them, you need to stop being priests, or, or, or you need to, re you know, repent of your sin and turn and do what's right. And he didn't really do that, and they didn't repent as well. So that gives a little bit of the historical background. And now if you look with me at chapter 4 verse 1 that continues this historical background, it begins in 1 Samuel 4 verse 1 by saying this. It says, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Um, this is just after God had called Samuel as a young man to be now the new prophet. Eli was to be the religious leader, but he was really not, not uh, wholeheartedly serving the Lord though he did trust in the Lord. But so Samuel is rising up. Um, before we really get into Samuel's life, there's this little interlude to say, hey, look, let's look at a, a critical event that happens before we hear from Samuel. And that begins in the rest of verse 1. So it says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And you could put the word again in there because this was not the first time and it wasn't going to be the last time. They were arch enemies. It says, 
uh, they encamped at Ebenezer and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. And that was up in northern Israel. It says the Philistines drew up in line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. Ouch, 4,000 men. When you pause and think about that, that that's, that's a lot of soldiers who lost their lives um, when they uh, lost this battle. Uh, when it says the field of battle, just by the way, the Philistines, uh, one advantage they had was they had chariots uh, driven by horses. And so if it's on a field like this and not in a mountainous region, they had a major advantage and they used that advantage against the Israelites. The Israelites were defeated and lost against the Philistines. So now with some of that historical background in mind, then let's jump into the three life lessons from these three chapters. And the first one, if you're following in the notes there, is this. The first lesson is uh, rely on God, not on religious practices and symbols. This is a call for us to rely on, to trust in, to lean on, to look to our Heavenly Father. So at the beginning of verse uh, 3, we see the Israelites ask the question, why? Why did this happen? Look at verse 3. It says, And when the troops, that is the, the troops of Israel, came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, first, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? And then they said, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant to the Lord here from Shiloh. Shiloh was where the tabernacle was, which is where uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant was, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So uh, the Israelites, um, they, they lose the battle, 4,000 die. They come back to their camp away from the battlefield. And there they're talking to their elders, the wise men of Israel, sort of some of the leaders of Israel. And they say, what do we do? And the elders uh, call out and they say, why has the Lord done this to us? Let me ask a question. Was this an appropriate question to ask at this point? The question, why? Is that an appropriate question to ask at a time of defeat? Yeah. That's a, thank you. And, and I would say yes and no, depending on this. What was the attitude of the Israelites? What is our attitude when we ask the question, why? It, it can be a, a question of blame or anger or bitterness toward God, right? God, why did you do this, right? We've been there. Uh, many go there. The Israelites went there from time to time. Uh, but if the attitude is more like this, God, I, I, is there something in my life that needs to change? Why did you let this happen? Why did we get defeated? God, I'm humbly coming before you and, and, and show me. It's a self-evaluation. Now, which one the Israelites had here, I, I think it was more of the previous because of the way they respond and the way they act out of what happens here and out of their question, why? You see, they, they don't say to God, um, God, why did this happen? And show us where we've been wrong. Show us what to do. We repent of any sin we've done. No, instead, they, they take things into their own hands. You see, the Israelites understood this. Christians and, and Israel under the old covenant, we, we're under different covenants. Under their covenant, it was very clear. You can read it in Scripture in the first five books of the Bible. It was very clear. If they went to battle when God told them to go to battle and they lost, that meant there was sin going on and they needed to repent of that sin. Okay, 
But there were times that God told them to go to battle and they would win. And that was one of God's ways of saying, I am with you, I am for you, you're doing my work. Okay? So they're defeated. They should be saying, wait a minute, what's wrong with us? Where is this sin? And really, ultimately, they knew. They knew what was going on at the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, with Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons. They knew that Eli was doing very little to stop them. Uh, but here, they, they're blaming God, and then they're taking things into their own hands. Saying, we're going to do our own thing. We're not going to look to God. We're going to take things in our own hands. How do we see that? Look at verse 3 again. So after it says that the elders say, why did you defeat us, Lord? And then uh, in the rest of verse 3, it says this. They say, here's, here's our bright idea. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here, that is to the battlefield, from Shiloh, which was 20-some miles away. Shiloh, again, was where the tabernacle was, and therefore the, the Ark was in it. And it says, why? That it, the Ark, may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Well, let, let's pause for a minute and talk about the Ark. What's the Ark? Well, first of all, it's not uh, the Ark of Noah, right? Noah's Ark. Okay, just you know, to, to let you know, it's not Noah's Ark, very different thing. It's also not an idol. You know, some may look at it, and I think the Philistines, later on you're going to see, they, they kind of thought of it as an idol, but it wasn't an idol. An idol is something that is, is formed and shaped to look like the God it represents, right? Um, and, and we'll see that with the God Dagon in chapter 2, or chapter 5. So it, it's not an idol. God very clearly in his word again and again in the Old and New Testament says, do not worship idols. Don't make an image to look like me. Okay, so it's not an idol, um, even though the, uh, the Philistines thought it was. Also, so if it's not an idol, it's not the Noah's Ark. It's, what is it? It's a chest. It was literally a, a small chest that you could put things into. So they put the Ten Commandments in there to remind them of God's commandments. They also put a, a jar of manna in that to remind them of how God provided for them for 40 years when they were wandering in the desert. And then they also put in there Aaron's walking stick um, that had budded with almonds to remind them that only the sons of Aaron were to be the priests of Israel. So those things were, were inside uh, the, the, the ark, the chest. But more than anything else, what the ark was all about was it represented God's special presence among them. It represented God's blessing with them. It represented God's glory among them, right? So it, it represented something extremely significant and beautiful. And you say, wait a minute, I thought God was everywhere present. How is it that, you know, this thing represented God's presence among them? Well, he is everywhere present. He always has been. He always will be. Even today, as we're here, as we leave wherever we go, God is with us, no matter what. Uh, however, um, when the Israelites would choose to rebel against God, he would remove his blessing from them. He would remove his, his glory from them, so to speak, right? And instead, that blessing would be re replaced with punishment, as we're going to see here. So uh, the, the, um, the ark symbolized his presence. Now, um, one fascinating thing about this is seen in verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says, So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, uh, who is, listen to this, enthroned on the cherubim. Now, you saw a, a picture um, of, of that or a model of the Ark up on the screen, and you noticed um, on, on the top of that chest, there were these angelic beings with their, with their wings stretched forward. And, and it says here that, um, that, that God who was enthroned on the cherubim, cherubim were a type of an angel, and so 
what God would do when the ark was where it was supposed to be in the tabernacle, um, in the most holy place of the tabernacle, which was the back room that only the high priest could go into once a year. When it was in there, God would reveal a bit of his glory, his bright shining beauty, so that when the high priest got to go in there once a year, he could see just, just a glimpse a snapshot, so to speak, of, of God's brightness, of God's beauty, of God's glory. And that's what that's talking about. And he would, he would appear in sort of a cloud over the top of the ark to show them, I'm here, I am with you. Uh, when they bring the ark with them, that's not the case. That cloud is not there. It's just the ark all by itself. So uh, a question would be, as we're reading this, well, um, does God tell them in the first five books of the Bible, which is the law of the Israelites from God, does he tell them, when you go to battle, bring the ark with you? No, he doesn't tell them in, in a law. There's no law that says, when you go to battle, you've got to bring the ark with you. However, there were specific times he told them to do it. It didn't mean every time they were to do it, but only when he told them to do it. Right? So, for example, when they marched around the walls of Jericho before they fell down, those seven days in a row, right? They had the ark of God with them. They brought that into that battle. There were times when God told them to, but they were only to do it when God told them to. Otherwise, it was supposed to stay in that, that tabernacle. And only once a year was the high priest to go in there. So that was a major sin to bring it out without God's permission. Now, um, they had brought it in, into battle before, but only when God gave them permission. So, um, what, what, what we're going to see, what was the problem then? If they bring the ark out, what's the heart problem going on here. Take a look again at verse, verse 3. The second half of verse 3 gives us the answer. Um, and the beginning is the question, why? And then here's where they take things into their own hands and say, here's how we're going to solve this problem. And the second half of verse 3 says, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here, that is to the battlefield, from Shiloh, where the tabernacle was. Why? That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Do you see the problem there? They didn't say that God may save us from the power of the enemies. They said that it, this ark, this object, this symbol, this representative, they didn't call out on God. They relied on this symbolic religious practice. Now, do we have any sort of equivalent today to the ark of God. Uh, absolutely not, right? And, and here's the thing. Could the ark do anything for them? Could it help them? No, thank you very much. No, it couldn't. It's just this object. It's wood. It was a wooden object overlaid with gold and it looked fancy and everything. There was lots of symbolism in it, but the, 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 the thing couldn't help them one shred. Maybe they could pick it up and throw it at somebody, you know, um, or sell it and, and, you know, get money from the gold and, you know, I don't know. But the ark itself could do nothing for them. It was the God of the ark. But yet they were looking to the ark. And like I said, we don't have anything equivalent to the ark today. You know, like a cross. You know, I mean, a cross, of course, symbolizes uh, one of the most uh, glorious things ever, Christ giving his life for us. But, um, but the cross itself can do nothing for us, right? Um, and think about it. Are there any religious symbols that we have today, though, or religious practices that we do that we can sometimes misuse, like the Israelites tried to misuse the ark. Um, things that instead of really looking to God and, and saying, God, I need you. God, I give you my life. God, rescue me. Help me. 
we look to the symbol or to the practice instead. Let me give you some examples. So is it possible with baptism? By the way, we have baptisms coming up again soon in June, I believe. Um, is getting baptized a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. Yes, some of you are like, I'm not sure. Is this a trick question? You know, it's a good thing. Um, can, can, we do, uh, can we get baptized for the right reasons or for the wrong reasons? We can, we, we can do, yeah, both. Uh, the right reasons would be, God, I can't believe you're so awesome that Christ would suffer and die for me so that I could be rescued from hell and spend eternity in paradise with you. You are awesome. Thank you so much. I want to get baptized to show that I love you and to, and to represent to the world my faith in you. That's a good motive, right? A bad motive would be, God, I better get baptized so that you will forgive me, so that I can earn my way into heaven, so that you will help me, okay? That's, that's not the motive that the Bible teaches. Or how about communion? There's another symbol that we have as Christians, right? Again, it's not equivalent to the Ark of the Covenant, but there's still beautiful symbolism there of, of Christ's suffering and death for us and the hope of his second coming. That's what uh, communion is all about. Um, communion is good. Uh, can it be done with false motives? And it, can it be done with good motives? Yes, absolutely. Uh, good motives would be, Jesus, thank you for suffering and dying in my place. I deserve to die. I deserve to go to hell. But Jesus, you, you took it for me on the cross. You took all my sins on the cross. Thank you, Jesus. I repent. I turn to you. Forgive my sins. I want to live for you, and I want to walk with you. It's a part of a relationship with God, right? But we can turn it into something like, okay, if I take this communion, then maybe he'll forgive me. Then maybe he'll give me the job promotion that I need. Then maybe this good thing will happen. You know what I mean? We, we, we skew it. And the fact is, is that we could go through with some of the practices that we do. Oh, if I go to church, then, then, then God will do this for me. If I read my Bible, then this. You know, if I pray, if I give offering, if I share my faith with somebody, if I, if I, if I. And if I get in a car wreck, oh man, that's because I didn't read my Bible that morning. <laughs> I think we reason like this. And that's a misuse of these symbols and these practices of Christians, of, yeah, of Christians like Israel with the ark, right? They were looking to it. They said that it may save us from our enemies. No, no, no. They had it backwards. They had it all wrong. And we could fall into the same trouble if we're not careful. So then, uh, life lesson number one, as we're looking at chapter four, is to rely on God himself, right? Not on the religious symbols or practices that we have. Rely and trust in God himself. The second life lesson that we can learn from what happens here is this. If you're following the notes, God punishes sin just as he has promised. Um, when we take things into our own hands, when we don't say, okay, God, what do you want me to do? Let me search the scriptures to find how you want me to respond to this difficult situation I'm in. When we take things in our own hands and do things our own way outside of what God wants us to do, sometimes at the beginning, do we get a little bit of satisfaction and relief? Yeah, that's fair to say. And that was true of Israel. Uh, they go outside of God's will. They do things their own way. And at the very first, they get a little bit of satisfaction, a little bit of relief. And we see that starting in verse, uh, verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. It says, So the people, that's the people of Israel, sent to Shiloh and brought from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. Uh, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. Verse 5. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. It shook. They were so excited 
to have the ark. They're thinking, now there's victory. We've got the ark of God here, right? Verse 6. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Hebrews is another word, another name for the Israelites. And, and when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. For they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, verse 8, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? Speaking of the ark. Um, these are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews and they have, uh, as they have been to you. Be men and fight. Now, w- when you're reading this, you're realizing that this almost looks like it's really helping them out, right? The Israelites get pumped. They're like, yeah, we've got the ark. We're going to kick some butt, right? Oops, can I say that in church? Um, and the Philistines are like, oh no, we're going to die. They've got this God, you know what I mean? And see, they're misunderstanding this. They're thinking that, that the ark was an idol, a God. They were thinking that, that this ark is the one who conquered the Egyptians. They had some truth in there about defeating Egypt, but also some, some error as well. But, but at first here, there's, there's some relief, right? They're like, wow, we're, we're strong, the Israelites. And man, those guys are shaking in their shoes. This is great. We're going to win. So some temporary relief, right? When we sin, when we say yes to our sinful desires, there's often some temporary relief. And that's why we do it. There's often some temporary satisfaction, right? But it doesn't last. It never does, right? There's always more pain than pleasure when we sin. There's always more of a headache and a heartache than any sort of help that our sins uh, give us when we take things in our own hands, right? So the Israelites, then, we're going to see that. That it doesn't end up helping them at all. In fact, it's, it turns against them, so to speak. Verse 10, take a look at what happens. So the Philistines fought, and, and you know what? They fought for their lives. They thought they were doomed. So, and they fought, and Israel was defeated. And they, the Israelites, fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. Listen to this. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And that, that's intense. 30,000 in one battle, right? Um, this kind of thing happens today too. Not necessarily in one battle, but uh, it's, it's overwhelmingly depressing. Uh, and it goes on. And it gets even worse. Verse 11, it says, And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, if you want to get depressed, you know, um, read things like this in the Old Testament. You'll get depressed. But always remember that, that, that it doesn't end there. God brings hope out of horrible situations, which we're going to see in the next couple of chapters. Um, so um, what I want to point out, a couple things here. In the previous two chapters, in chapter 2 and in chapter 3, God said to Eli through a prophet that's unnamed and then through uh, Samuel, the first time he gives a prophecy, he says, look, your sons are blowing it. They're, they're, uh, they're, they're destroying my name among the people of Israel. They need to stop this, right? Twice. And he said, listen, on the same day, the two of them will die, okay? And exactly as God prophesied, what happened? They died on the same day. And, and this is to remind us that just as God has promised punishment, it, it, 
it will happen. Those who have rejected Christ, those who have rebelled against God, ultimately, hell is their destiny. It's a reality. Jesus came and he said, listen, I'm warning you. You don't want to go there. That's why I'm dying on the cross. Turn to me, trust in me, follow me, and you'll be rescued, delivered, and saved from hell. But what about for those of us who are believers in Christ, those of us who are sons and daughters of Christ? Do we have to consider any sort of discipline? Yes, the Bible is very clear that there's discipline in this life when we choose to disobey God and do not turn back to Him. He disciplines us, which often includes pain, not to destroy us, not to defeat us, but to get our attention to turn back to Him, to humble us, to bring us on our knees to where we're finally saying, okay, God, you're right. I was wrong. God, I need your complete forgiveness. And here's the thing. That's why Jesus died on the cross, right? There's absolute, total, perfect, pure, uh, complete forgiveness when we come to Him and say, I was wrong, forgive me. Can anyone say amen to that? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Now, and here's the, the thing is, all the while, why did God not just kill Hophni and Phineas right off the bat? He could have. It would be easy for him. They deserved it. Why didn't he? He gave those prophecies ahead of time to give them an opportunity to repent. As long as we're alive, as long as your parents are alive and on their deathbed, we have opportunity to repent. My grandmother lived two weeks more after she turned to Christ. Uh, I had sent her a letter. Her neighbor read it to her. She couldn't read because she had terrible cataracts. And her neighbor read it to her. My mom led her to Christ on the phone. And she said to my mom this, I've been running from God all my life. I'm done running. Did Christ forgive her for her sins? Absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't matter if it's um, the day you can first understand the gospel or on your deathbed. Christ says, repent, turn from your sin. And Hophni and Phinehas refused to do that. And so God disciplined them. God punished them. And in fact, the whole nation suffered because of it. The whole nation of Israel suffered, sadly, because of it. So God wanted them, when they were asking why, they, he wanted a sincere why. God, why is this happening? Oh, that's right, Hophni and Phinehas. We shouldn't take things in our own hands. We should call out to you, look to your scriptures and see what to do and repent of our sins and reflect on our lives, give our lives to you, and do the right thing. But they did not. And as a result, what looked like it was going to give them some relief at first ended up bringing disaster to Israel. And as you continue to read the rest of chapter 5, you see more and more of the, the devastating consequences of, of their actions, of not repenting, but instead sort of digging the, their heels in and doing things their own way. So you can read that now. Chapter 5, I'm just going to do this briefly, this final point. And then kind of summarize the rest of chapter 5 and chapter 6. But in chapter 5, here we see a third life lesson from these chapters. The third life lesson is this, if you're following in the notes. God wants us to glorify Him, right? Obviously, of course. But listen to this. This is interesting. But even when we don't, He will glorify Himself. He will glorify Himself. And we're going to see this in the first part of chapter 5. And then later you can go back and read the second part of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6. Again and again, God shows us that He will glorify Himself. So, first of all, we see this. Um, what happens when the Philistines uh, take the ark um, and, and what do they do with it? Well, they, they bring it in to the temple of their chief god, Dagon. 
Dagon is the chief god. Um, historians believe that Dagon was the father of Baal, the god Baal. That's some of, their, some of the background there. But they bring, um, they bring the ark, thinking that it's Israel's god, this idol, and they set it side by side with Dagon. Okay, let's take a look at that in verse 1. Chapter 5, verse 1. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Ashdod was the capital city of the Philistine territory. Verse 2, Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, that is the temple of Dagon, and set it up besides Dagon. Okay, so there he is. There's the ark of God on one side. There's Dagon on the other. And, and why did they do that? Ah, to symbolize that Dagon was mightier than the God of Israel. I mean, obviously he is, right? I mean, in their minds, think about it. We just defeated the Israelites. The God of Israel did not help them. Our God helped us. Therefore, our God is greater than their God, right? So they put it as sort of a trophy saying, ha, 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 Dagon is mightier than God. And what I have titled this chapter of the Bible is God versus Dagon. Who's going to win? You ready to see who's going to win? <laughs> okay, verse 3. Here's what we find out. It says, And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, meaning listen up, take a look at this, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. I love how it let me, oh, oh God, let me, let me just help you a little bit here. Let's just, come on, go, you know. Uh, this God needed help from his people, right? That's, you got to see the irony here, right? So, but, but what does it say happened? First, it says that he fell face downward. Boom. What does that remind us of? Goliath. Hit in the head, but he fell face downward. It's a symbol of this, uh, this God, so to speak. Again, it's not a real God. There's only one real God. This was a demon. The Bible says demons uh, impose. They, they sort of pretend to be gods. And this is exactly what this was a, a demon uh, this idol was a representation of a demon that they thought was their chief god. And now he's flat on his face in front of the ark. Let's think about a couple things here. When they brought it in, verse 2 says, they brought it in, he was besides Dagon, right? So ark of God on one side, Dagon on the other. Side by side, sort of shoulder to shoulder type of thing, right? But notice what it says in verse 3, the preposition used about where Dagon had fallen. And if you look halfway through the verse, it says Dagon, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. That word before literally means in front of. So what, what, what we have there is there's the two besides each other. Now Dagon, God makes him move, shift forward, fall flat on his face in front of the ark. You see what's going on there? Do you see the symbolism of that? So Dagon, who the, the day before was towering over the ark saying, I am Lord over the God of Israel. I am superior. I am supreme. Now he's bowing face down right in front of the ark, symbolizing that, no, 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 you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Um, he is in submission now to the God of Israel. And it's kind of like Joshua uh, in, in one chapter of Joshua. I think it's chapter seven. Um, maybe you'll see it up on the, the screen there. Um, I'm losing my place. Joshua 7, 6. It says, then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening. He and the elders of Israel, they were bowing before the ark of the Lord as a symbolizing we're submitting to you now. Here, this so-called so God is bowing before the ark of the Lord. Now, you think that was funny enough? Take a look at what happens next. 
in verse 4. So, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord. Okay, exactly what happened. But here's something new that happens. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. (laughs) Again, I can't help but laugh when I read this. What is the symbolism of this? Once again, they were side by side. But, and and, and he, he was put back in his place, right? But then God moved him, bowed face down to the ground, and now his head and his hands were removed from Dagon. What did King David do before he was king? Uh, when he killed Goliath by hitting him with the stone, what did he do? He cut off his head. It's a symbol of absolute defeat. If your God's head is chopped off, it ain't going to help you at all, right? And if, if his hands are chopped off, it ain't going to help you at all, or right? It's just kind of one of those things. You just have to know that. If your God has no head or no hands, it's not going to be able to help you. So just something, you know, there's another life lesson, I guess. But anyway, so it's a, it's a way of showing utter defeat. So think about um, this, this God, Dagon, went from being looking superior to God to submitting to God to being utterly defeated by God. Did God need the Israelites to show the Philistines how great he was? No, he didn't. I did forget to bring up this one point earlier, and I think the verse was on there. I just want to bring this up real quick. From Romans 2.24, what we find is the Israelites, um, instead of glorifying God, and to glorify God is to point to how great he is. Look how awesome God is. Okay? Um, Instead of glorifying God, they they de-glorified God, right? They, in a sense, humiliated God, so to speak, by their actions. They made God look weak. They made God look uncaring. They made, made God look incapable to save them, right? Um, and so they did not bring glory to God. They did the opposite. And you know what? The fact is, is that we as Christians can do that as well, right? Uh, we all, myself included, are hypocrites, right? Okay, and praise God, Christ died for us to forgive us of those sins as we confess them and are honest with God and repent of those sins, turning away from those sins. But, but it still brings defame against God, doesn't it? Um, here's a kind of a scathing verse. When I read it, I, I go, ouch. But um, Romans 2.24, it says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That, that verse was specific to Israel, but it's also applied to Christians as well. When we choose not to represent God. Here's the thing. The ultimate way we can glorify God is this people ought to be able to say, oh, look at our lives and say, oh, that's what Jesus is like. And I fail at that every day, okay? The idea, the hope, the plan is that the Holy Spirit living within us will help us step by step, day by day, to grow and to change to where by the end of our lives, we're glorifying God through the way that we live much more than we did when we first became a Christian. That's the whole point, right? But sometimes we fail. And here's the thing. Ultimately, even when we fail, God will glorify himself in one way or another. Ultimately, when Christ returns, right? As we talked about this morning, thanks, John, for bringing that up. When Jesus returns, all people of all nations will see it and say, oh my goodness, wow. And those who rejected Christ, those who rebelled against God, will say, we are doomed. The Bible even talks about how they're going to try to hide themselves in caves and in rocks. 
But we who trust in Christ because of his amazing grace and mercy and forgiveness and love upon us, we who trust in Christ will say, there he is, praise God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords is finally here and we will glorify God with all of our hearts. And it's going to be a glorious day. Praise God for that. Yes, amen. So then thinking of these things, God, of course, wants us to glorify him. But even when we don't, even when we don't, he will glorify himself. So this morning, three lessons out of many that we could learn from these chapters. The three lessons we saw was that we are to rely on God, not on our religious practices and, and, and uh, symbols. Uh, um, we are to remember that God, that God does punish sin. And that that's to create some fear and to desire to repent of sin like Hophni and Phinehas refused to do. Uh, and finally, that, that God wants us to glorify him. And it's our joy to glorify him. It's a blessing to be able to point others to how great he is. But when we don't, he ultimately will. So this morning, um, as we close and as we sing our final song, uh, through song, let's glorify him. Let's give him the praise and honor and thanksgiving and adoration that he deserves, right? Would you pray with me? Yes, Father, you, your precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Holy Spirit, you are worthy of highest praises. Uh, no one on earth deserves the honor, the glory, the praise, uh, the adoration that you do, Father, that your Son, Jesus Christ, does. So we do. We praise you. You lift your name on high. And I, I thank you this morning for reminding us uh, through these scriptures of how you have uh, honored yourself, even in the midst of Israel, dishonoring you. God, give us the grace and the strength today and this new week to honor you in, in the way that we talk to others and the way that we live our lives and the way that we praise you, Lord God. And ultimately, may you be honored. May you be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Let's glorify the Lord together.